Hello and welcome. This is your host, Jonathan Morgan, and you're listening to Design Everywhere, the podcast that invites you to ask what if and challenges you to understand the why that drives design. This is the second in a two-part conversation with Haig Armit, professor, designer, and musician living in Vancouver, British Columbia. If you haven't listened to part one yet, you might want to go do that now. Uh, we explored the convergence of music, technology, and design, and some of the wonderfully cool devices he's developed on his own and through his teaching. Today, we'll focus more on how he translates his passions into teaching and supporting future generations of designers, starting with his work with TUMO, uh, the Center for Creative Technologies in Yerevan, Armenia. Here's our conversation. So I saw a thing outside of the work you're doing at Emily Carr. I also saw you were doing some work with TUMO, the yeah. Center for Creative Technologies, right? Yeah. That was really interesting. What? How did that come about? Because you were working, you know, with with Emily Carr, you're working with, you know, college students, grad students, things like that. But these were much younger. Yeah, teenagers, in fact. So I'm of Armenian background. So my wife and I are both Armenian. And in fact, we met in Armenia. She was living in London and I was living in Vancouver. And we both happened to be traveling to Armenia at the same time. And that's how we met. So there's this amazing school called TUMO that is run by an American Armenian who put something like $20 million into this really beautiful high-tech complex that he basically was investing in the next generation of Armenians and saw promise. And the model is really, really interesting. They ask, typically it started with asking diasporan Armenians, so Armenians living outside of Armenia, to come for a visit to Armenia. And while you're there, do a, a week-long course or a workshop of some sort. And so I guess it's now maybe seven or eight years ago, I did one on mobile apps for social change. And some of the students in the week-long workshop, they built an Android app that basically you could put a pin on a map where there was garbage on the street and it would basically leave a record saying, pick up this garbage. And so they're using this app to clean up the streets of Yerevan, which is the capital of Armenia. And like, I was blown away that I was just asking them to like, think about and make prototypes of something that might make some kind of social change. And these kids, like they're 15, 14 years old, they sat there, got on the computer and coded up like a full working version of a, an app and had it launched and everything by the end of the week. It kind of blew my mind how capable they were. And so every year I try to go there and every year I kind of try to outdo my own workshops. So it's a challenge to me and it's usually kind of out there things that my university would need like a year of approvals through committees to add that kind of curriculum in. Like the, the last year that I was there, I was there with Scott Nazarian, who is a an amazing designer who's worked at Frog. He lives in Seattle now. If you don't know Scott, you should look him up. He's really, really uh, accomplished designer. So he's at yeah, I think he was at Frog for as a creative director for like 16 years. He's worked with a HoloLens team. So Scott and I, he's Scott is also Armenian. And I said, hey, why don't we do something to do with VR? Because I'd only been teaching a little bit of a UX for VR. And so we did this uh, workshop this past summer when we were there called Dining in VR. 
And it was about inviting people around the world to sit at a traditional kind of Armenian dining table through a VR experience. It was a really interesting outcome to that. So that was the second workshop. The first one was about instruments. So I was, I was teaching these teenagers how to A, create software synthesizers, and then start building hardware that would trigger those software synthesizers. So because you can run some pretty sophisticated software, even, even on a Raspberry Pi these days, that Raspberry Pi can just be so small that you can embed them into ukuleles and things like that. And, and you can get some really crazy sounds. You can get a, a traditional instrument to not sound like a traditional instrument, and you can get something that's not even known as an instrument. So the students were turning park benches into instruments and things like that by putting microphones under the park bench and having them be amplified and then you know, adding all kinds of effects. So it was really kind of a wide open. I didn't really have any preconceived ideas of what the instruments were that people would make, but they did some really cool things. Like this one 15-year-old kid made a really cool drum set out of thrown away Coke cans that he had found. Like he took like 12 Coke cans, put different microphones in each one of them, and they all fed into this Raspberry Pi. So when you hit them, he had like some be cymbals, bass drums, all kinds of different sounds, and he was able to play a full song with it. It was, it was cool. That's awesome. I wish something like that was around when I was that young, because I might have had a little more direction. I might have moved a little faster than I did, but... Well, so if you haven't noticed yet, like my strategy is like, it's all about like mashing it up, whether I'm talking about architecture and music or whether I'm talking about uh, de design and coding, for example, they go hand in hand for me. Like I, I'm kind of tired of that argument that if soon as you're coding, you're a developer, I'm like, no, you're not. You're prototyping, you're hacking, you're doing whatever it takes to make a new experience. And it goes beyond just like imagining it on paper. A lot more happens when you build the thing and you see how people are actually reacting or are moving around a space. So to me, there's a blurred line between developer and designer. And I know that's, for some people, a complicated thing. And, and I don't expect it from all of our students, for example. But the ones that are able to like get into that zone, they are rewarded quite quickly. They become the ones that everyone's like, hey, can you build me a prototype that does this? And it's just a, a great skill to have. And I refuse to kind of think that our brains are are so limited that we have to focus in one or the other. And it kind of comes back to my education as a, as a musician. Like they didn't separate the technical ability from the ideas part of, of music. Like they were all, they went hand in hand. Right now in design, we're getting a lot of design education that's really about like, you're the person that doesn't deal with any math or you're purely creative. So you can just do these blue sky brainstorming sessions but we all know that as designers, we also have to be super critical at times. So there's times when we want to be saying, you know, there are no bad ideas, but then that we have to turn around and go, okay, so out of these 40 ideas that we now have, what are the best ones here? And you have to use kind of a critical lens to look at those things. And sometimes you don't have the right kind of context or enough understanding about human psychology 
to make a, a proper decision at that point. So you have to kind of build a low fidelity prototype and put it in front of people to then very quickly see what's what's going to resonate and what's not. I, I think that's that's hugely important. If you always talk about it at work, it's like the one place that you can almost guarantee that people aren't going to use the product you're designing is sitting down in front of a desk, like what you're exactly. designing. You're designing on a computer, but if you're not designing a an application, if you're not designing the next Excel or Photoshop or something like that, people aren't going to be sitting like that. They're going to be interacting with it in different ways. There's going to be contextual influences Absolutely. coming in from left and right. And, and until you can understand that, you can't make the best decision. So I, I really... That really resonates with me. And I, I believe, to your point, there are you know, some designers. It's like, yes, go down that path. That, that's your thing. You feel comfortable there. But if you feel comfortable going out from there, do that and build that knowledge deeper. You know what the T-shaped person is? like? Yeah, IDOs. Yeah, thing. so the way I think of the T-shaped person is in the way I particularly believe people should be is you can have that lower end of the T. So the T is the top of the T is these things, these generalities. So you should have some knowledge of these proficiencies within whatever space you're working in. And then the long end of the T is like what you're really proficient at. That's your specialty. Yeah. That vertical stem. The top end to me is, uh, is about empathy. You need to, at, at the very minimum, need to know enough about those other people that are part of the puzzle. So if it's developers, if it's copywriters, content strategists, whatever that is, if you're involved in this one thing, you have to at least know enough about what they do and have at least walked a little bit in their shoes to have empathy for what they have to go through to make that work and understand at least to a point that you can ask the right questions and give them the support they need and work as a team. So even if you do take that, I'm just going to be a designer and I'm going down this path. If you, In the types of environments, at least that I'm in, you have to have at least some knowledge of how everyone else is getting their work done. Did you just say just a designer? <laughs> I'm just joking with you. I think you heard that <laughs> improperly. There must be something wrong with the connection. <laughs> I always like try to reimagine that T-shaped person because to me, like, and I know this for a fact because I'm dealing with students all the time. By the time they come into university, they have at least one depth. Like, so that vertical bar that represents the depth of like something that they're getting close to being an expert at, like that 10,000 hour rule or whatever. So most people have at least a few verticals. So by the time they're 20 years old, they've already been exploring photography for five years. And they've been being a DJ for five years for parties. And they they have interest in that. And they have interest in entrepreneurship because their dad has run a business. And so they have more than what you'd expect. And they don't think that they could bring all of those into their design career. But what I always say is that you'll be able to offer something that's unique in the design world because of just who you are, because of your background. And if you bring all of those things and incorporate them in, nobody wants generic designers anymore. We don't want people that are just like, I'm going to make the most beautiful web form for you, for example. (laughs) Sorry. Sorry, people that (laughs) love making web forms. I don't think it's about being generic at all. It's about resonating with people. And I think 
that you can only do that by bringing all these human elements of other parts of your life into your work as a designer. I encourage that with all the the people that I work with in education. I've talked about this in a TED talk. Like I, I think that there was a time when industries were really rewarding the specialists. So the more special your expertise, the more you get paid. But there's now all these people that play across things. Like uh, I've seen lots of documentaries where a scientist is also a musician, for example, and he's mixing these two worlds that you wouldn't think really fit together. And that's kind of the recipe for all kinds of innovation. So to come back to this, like, why do I mash up things so much? Why, why am I putting the chocolate and the peanut butter together so much. And it's, <laughs> it's because there's always, like design has always been about that mashup idea. And the more diverse you are about where those ideas come from, the more interesting your results can be. You're living proof of bringing all those together. So we, you know, like, I, I think as, I, as I've gotten older, I've really started to appreciate that part of my life a lot more as it relates to design and I've embraced it more. So like that connection with my musical background, kind of bring all of that around. Us finding out that all of those things that we uh, have learned along the way are actually super valuable to our design careers. Like you and I are realizing that later on in our careers. And I want to make sure that that message is heard loud and clear for the generation of designers that are just kind of moving into understanding what kind of designers they are. If I was told that I could mix music in my design work, like back 30 years ago when I started designing websites, I think I would have gone about it in a really different way. I kind of feel things moved slower for us that have been around before a lot of communication along this. People are going to be able to listen to this this conversation that we're having and probably get a lot more, you know, what, what would it have taken 30 years ago to find someone to that could talk about this and kind of lead us down that path. But yeah, I agree. I, I think people like you getting this into the curriculum, planting that seed early and getting people to embrace this stuff that they may have, you know, in, in my case, you know, I kind of pushed the music side of me to the side because it didn't quite jive with working in a design team at a corporation or something yeah. that, instead of embracing it. I, I'm noticing that so many people in UX have musical backgrounds. Like it's not a coincidence that at least half the people I meet have some kind of musical background. Do you know who David Sherwin is? I do not. David Sherwin's, uh, he lives in Portland right now, and he's written a bunch of books on, on design. Definitely worth looking up. Him and I uh, have been writing a whole bunch of music during the, the lockdown and just sending files, tracks back and forth. We have a full album worth of music that we're about to release. And he's like, I've only known him as a UX designer for the last eight, 10 years. And so I'm, I'm just amazed that there are people that hold like a richness of knowledge underneath their designer belt, right? So it's, it's so cool to discover that as well. Uh, Jonathan, if I may, I want to make a tiny little plug. Yep. So if you're interested in this area of where music and interaction design meet, I've been given a little small grant from my university to explore this further. So myself and two other students are going to be launching a podcast this fall about sonic interactions. So you can either follow me on Instagram. My Instagram handle is Haig, just H-A-I-G, or I'm found on Twitter, Haig Arman, and various other platforms. 
So I'll be announcing when we launch this podcast. So hopefully you can listen to that and give us some directions, some suggestions on places to dig. That is awesome. I, I'm personally looking forward to it. This has been an awesome conversation. I can't believe the time has flown by that fast. So I really appreciate your time. This, is, this has been great. Real quick, what's next for you? What's your next project? So I'm trying to build like a hybrid between an old tube amp and something that has some kind of digital interface. So it's kind of mixing old school, like anyone that doesn't know about guitar players, a lot of them use tube technology, which is the stuff, those glass tubes that you'd find in old TVs. The best guitar amps are still made with tubes. And so it's like, 100-year-old technology, but we're still making kind of classic tube amps. So I am always looking for opportunities of like how to bring an old technology into the, the foreground and how to make sure that it doesn't go the way of the Polaroid or whatever, like, and just become extinct because tube amps are definitely a distinct sound and they actually make you play differently. So how do we bring that to modern or contemporary expectations of musicians these days. So I've just built like two tube amps and I'm trying to put like a more of a contemporary interface on top of that. So that's the, the latest project I'm working on. That, that's awesome. And I hope that when we listen to your podcast, you can tell us how. Thanks again for having me, Jonathan. <laughs> yeah, it's all really right. good to chat. That's it for this week. Thanks for listening to Design Everywhere. Please take a minute to subscribe to the show on your favorite podcast app if you haven't already. We have a lot more episodes in the works. And if you can give us a rating and review, we'd love to hear what you think. You can follow the show on Twitter. Just search for Design Everywhere Podcast. That's at design underscore every. You can also follow me, Jonathan Morgan, at Promo Rock. This has been a production of Evergreen Podcasts. A special thank you to our producer, Leah Longbreak, and audio engineer, Sean Roll Hoffman. I'm your host, Jonathan Morgan, and this is Design Everywhere. Thanks for listening. My name is Cindy Burnett, and each week I interview at least two traditionally published authors on my podcast, Thoughts from a Page. We talk spoiler-free about their books, so you can listen whether you have read the book or not. And then we delve into things that you most likely won't hear about anywhere else. The importance of the cover design, why they included various aspects of the story, personal details about both the books and the author's lives, and so much more. You can find the podcast on every major platform and learn more about it on my website, thoughtsfromapage.com. Thanks so much for checking it out. This podcast was produced with the support of the Ohio Motion Picture Tax Credit and in partnership with the Ohio Development Services Agency.